Well, how are we? Everybody good? I hope you're good. We do have a few people here in the audience today, all of our production and worship teams. In fact, can we give it up for them, man, making this available and doing this? It's uh, so incredible. So many uh, of our staff and then team members are here in making this happen. And that's the beauty of technology. Again, like you heard, because of your generosity that makes this available. And, and we're using all the technology that we can. And, and honestly, uh, you know, whether it's the devotionals each day, whether it's kids, whether it's students, whether it's our still reaching out and, and serving the community, uh, doing our ESL class and things like that. It's just amazing to see how God has given us the opportunities that he has to connect through technology. And, and some of those things will probably change how we even function as a church going forward. And so I'm so glad that you're able to join us online. And, and just so that you know, we'll, we'll kind of take this week to week, man. I mean, you know, we, no one knows uh, what this season holds for us. And so we're going to be flexible. Uh, and so we'll continue to keep you up to date. Uh, as of now, next Sunday, we're not meeting, uh, gathering in our locations as well. We'll continue to do online because it falls within the 15 days that the president and our, his task force has asked us to comply with to help do everything that we can to stop the, the spread of this virus. And so obviously today's online, next weekend we'll be online as well. And then we'll assess it from there and just kind of take it week to week and we'll keep you up to date. So make sure you're following all of our different media platforms that you can get information each week and we'll do our best to keep you updated so that you can stay engaged into the life of the church. And so uh, as a church, we're gonna continue just preaching through the series that we've been in, in Romans chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 13. We're gonna pick up where we left off last week. Last week we did verses one through seven, which ironically, which I don't think it's irony, I think it's just God's timing. We talked about the role of government and, and, and government does have a role to play and they've been instituted by God. And so that's one of the reasons why we're not meeting, uh, gathering together this week because we want to be good partners uh, with our communities and with our local and, and state and national governments. And so we'll continue to participate in that. And that's what God's word tells us to do, to obviously be subject to the governing authorities. And we're gonna just kind of continue that conversation today. Look at verses eight through 10. So eight, nine, and 10 three verses here in chapter 13. And Paul's gonna continue the same conversation, kind of just building on how do we live in light of the grace of God? Chapter 12, verse one says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, God has been so merciful. That's what he's talked about in chapters one through 11. Now chapters 12 through 16, or how do we live in light of that? And so today's message is gonna fall right in line with that in verses eight through 10. And so as always, we're gonna take a moment and pray and also pray not only for the message, but for all of our leaders and our amazing hospitals and medical staff and everybody that's working so hard during this season. So pray with me and then we'll jump into the message. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace in our life and how you have not only given us your word, you've given us your spirit, God, but you have given us governments, uh, for our good and, and no government, no person is perfect, God. And so uh, we want to submit where we should as your word tells us. And so we thank you for them. We thank you for all of our hospitals and physicians and nurses and doctors and everybody that's working so hard to keep people safe. And so God, I pray that you would bless them, uh, give them energy, give them grace, God, over these next however many weeks it is, God, that they are there to serve our communities. Pray for people to be safe, uh, God, as all of us do our part individually to help uh, comply with the guidelines that have been given to us. And then God, I pray as we open up your word today that you would speak to us. We thank you for your word, that it is truth. It is a rock that we can stand on. And God, we want to make sure that our, 
Our life, our identity is based upon the thing that never changes, and that's you. So God, thank you for being an unchanging God. Thank you for your word, as Isaiah says, will last forever. Everything else will fade away, but your word will stand forever. And so God, I pray as we open it today that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to us, open our eyes and ears, because we know without you, we can't. And then use it in our life to be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. So Romans chapter 13, verse Eight. I'll read verse eight and I'll talk about how it connects to the verses prior to and then what it means for us. So Romans 13, eight, it says this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, again, let's stop and chat here because there's a lot of confusion on this verse, just like there's a lot of confusion of a lot of different verses because people would just take one verse out of context and then use it. That's called proof texting where you try to use this one verse to make a point or prove something and you kind of ignore the rest of scripture. And so verse eight, it starts with, owe no one anything. Uh, A lot of times people have used that verse. In fact, I've had it quoted back to me uh, where people said, see, the Bible says that that as Christians, we shouldn't have any debt. And so therefore, some people think it's sinful for Christians to have a mortgage or a car payment and for churches to have a mortgage and those kinds of things. And, and because they use this verse to say, see, there, he's saying don't owe anything. But if you just kind of rip it out of his context, you misunderstand that in verses six and seven, he was just talking about paying what we owe. So if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe respect, pay respect. If you owe honor, pay honor. And the idea of it is, is to pay what you owe. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have any debt. In fact, there's plenty of other verses in the Bible that talk about how to manage money. And so, of course, it's a good principle. And we always encourage people not to incur too much debt. And again, this isn't a message on finances, but I just want to say a word here that all of us should do everything that we can to manage our debt. In fact, we, especially in times like this, it really makes us, because when things are uncertain, stock market's uncertain, people are losing their jobs. It is a great time for us to understand that we are a steward of the resources that God has given us. And so we want to be wise. We want to be smart. It's a great time to look at your life and make a plan to say, okay, I have this debt or that debt. I'm going to do everything that I can to be a a good financial steward and, and, and make sure that I'm not indebted for this for the rest of my life or things like that. But his main point here is not that we should never have debt. It's simply pay what you owe. That is his point. And so in life, there are going to be times where it's a mortgage, even a church mortgage, where we take out loans for for the good of our family or for the good of our church. And his point simply is not that you shouldn't do that, but to pay what you owe. And then his main point is to say, listen, you're going to pay what you owe in those things, whether it's taxes, which thank God our, our government, you know, extended that deadline for a couple months, pay respect, pay honor. But there's one thing that you will always owe and you will never pay off. And that is your debt to love. And so the idea here is really talking way more about how no matter what happens in our life, we never pay off our debt to love one another. In fact, I love how Origen, one of the early church fathers said it like this. I'm just going to quote it to you. He says, The debt of charity or love is permanent and we are never quit of it for we must pay it daily and yet always owe it. And so when it comes to understanding of how we live our lives, again, we are stewards that we should pay off our debts. Yes, 
But we also need to understand that we can never pay off our debt to love. So let me say it to you like this. You can never say, well, I've loved that person enough. I've loved, them, I've loved my wife enough. I've loved my husband enough. I've loved my kids enough. I've loved my, Jesus would even go a step further. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I love my enemy enough. You can never say that you've paid off your debt to love. Why? Because that is a debt that we never pay off. That is a debt that even the more we pay it, yet the more we owe. Because the idea of it is, is that when we love, we are fulfilling the law. So let me say it to you like this. You can never say, kids, teenagers watching, you can never say, I've obeyed my parents enough. You can never say, you know what? I obeyed the laws of traffic. I I obeyed the speeding laws enough. You can never say that. For the rest of our lives, we're going to love by obeying the law. And that is what Paul is getting at here. We're going to continue to love because we all have a debt to love and we never pay that off. We're never out from underneath the ability or really the command to love one another. And so what we're talking about here is Paul's contrasting, remember, talking about how to live as citizens, how to live as citizens in the communities that God has placed us into. We are to live not only in subjection to the authorities over us, but we are to live in such a way where we are loving other people in the same way that Christ loved us. In fact, he's going to go on, look at verse nine. He's going to expand this idea and really tie it into the laws from the Old Testament. Verse nine, it says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I remember when I was in college, I was introduced to this amazing uh, technological miracle called Cliff's Notes. I don't know if you've ever read Cliff's Notes, but it was a summary, if you will, that literally a dude named Cliff wrote of the different books I had to read. And so a guy named Cliff read the books and then he wrote a summary. Summary is called Cliff's Notes. And so he would give a summary of the book that I was supposed to read. And so I learned about that when I was in college. It helped me out tremendously because I like summaries, like just bullet down for me. All right, just tell me what I need to know. So I'd get the summaries and then I would go back and read the books. At least that's what you should think. All right. And so I, I would get a summary of what was going on so that I got the big idea. And what Paul is doing here is exactly what Jesus did in Matthew 22 when he summarized the commandments. In fact, Jesus was only doing what he also did in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter six. In fact, Deuteronomy was the book that Jesus quoted most often because in Deuteronomy chapter six, God summarizes the law. And this is one of my, and I say this often, one of my pastoral pet peeves that people do a lot of times when they talk about us being New Testament Christians and how we don't have to obey the law now because we're not under the law, we're under grace. What's a misunderstanding of the role of the law? So, So go with me here. Old Testament speaking, there are three different kind of groups or categories of laws that most theologians agree upon. One is moral law. One is civil law or judicial law. The other is ceremonial. And so those three categories kind of summarize all the laws in the Old Testament. The moral laws would be what we find in the Ten Commandments, the basic moral laws, the basic laws of morality. Then the civil laws would be the laws that the nation of Israel functioned under. That's a lot of the other laws. Uh, There's over 600 of them. And so those laws apply to Israel as a nation. 
And now we're not living in the nation of Israel, although it is a nation again, but for thousands of years, it wasn't. And so those laws that apply to Israel as a nation don't apply to us because we're under the laws of a different nation, different civil laws. But ironically enough, our nation got the basis of its civil and judicial laws from the Old Testament. And then third was the uh, ceremonial laws. And those were the laws that were applying to worship, applying to how the people acted as the people of God and all the sacrificial systems. And so when you think about Old Testament laws, three categories. Now, here's the caveat. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the ceremonial laws. He is now our sacrifice, which makes worship services today, I've mentioned this before, uh, you know, a lot more pleasant because we don't come together and slaughter a goat or slaughter a bull, which is what happened in the Old Testament. And so what we do now is we don't sacrifice, we worship the sacrifice, which is Jesus. So Jesus fulfilled those laws. Then the civil laws, again, I've already referenced, we're not in the nation of Israel, so we obey. That's what Romans 13, one through seven is. We obey our nation's civil laws and we obey them to the point that if they command us to do something that God forbids, we don't do that. Or if they command us not to do something that God commands us to do, we don't obey that. And so we obey the civil laws to a point where we understand that our government is limited. They are put in place by God, but God is our ultimate authority. So God's word is our authority. And then we come underneath the civil laws. But here's where the misunderstanding takes place. The moral laws that Jesus laid out in the Old Testament, he didn't do away with. In fact, he fulfilled them and then he upped them. And so here's what we need to understand particularly the 10 commandments. When you look at those, those could be broken down into two categories. The first four have to deal with loving God. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 22. The first commandment, love God. So Jesus summarizes the first four laws, which have no other God, have no idols, keep his name holy, keep the Sabbath holy. That has to do with our relationship with God. Then the next six or the last six have to do with our neighbor. And Jesus summarized those as love your neighbor as yourself. So here's what we need to get. When we obey those commandments, we are going to love God and we're going to love our neighbor as ourself. Or loving is fulfilling those laws. So as Christians, what we need to understand when the Bible talks about we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace, what it means is we're no longer under the punishment that the law shows us because Jesus took our punishment. It doesn't mean that we don't obey them. What it means is now we obey them just like Christ obeyed them. In fact, Christ upped them. So not only did Christ not do away with them, he fulfilled them and then he upped them. And here's what Paul is saying simply in in Romans chapter 13, saying, listen, now in light of the mercy of God that he said in chapter 12, yes, we submit to authorities and we understand that our calling or what God has called us to do, what God has commissioned us to do is now to love him and love our neighbor as ourself. And so you look at these, Paul mentions four of these laws. First, he says, do not commit adultery. This is why when people talk about, you know, that God is a, a lawgiver and that he's just into a bunch of laws. It really, again, another pastoral pet peeve. It annoys me because the only reason why God gives laws is because people invent new ways to sin. Again, if you don't believe that, just have kids. You'll see what I'm talking about. All right. The idea is in the beginning, God didn't give a bunch of laws. He gave laws as simply guidance for us to how to live. And and if you look at the 10 commandments, particularly these six that 
we're looking at four of them here, do not commit adultery. That's not like that's some huge moral, like, oh my gosh, you know, God is really out to get us here. No, God's saying, listen, if you want to love your neighbor as yourself, if you want to have a civil society, if you want to come together and be able to live with each other, let me give you a rule. Don't commit adultery. Again, it tends to go better in neighborhoods if that's not happening. And we'll get into this more next week in verses 11 through 14, where Paul even gives us some more explanation of this verse. But when we understand that when we commit adultery, we are not loving our neighbor. The second one, again, we can see, you shall not murder. I mean, it's not very loving to my neighbor if I murder somebody. Again, basic human moral code. Next one, you shall not steal. This one is very, uh, not interesting, but it's, it becomes very personal because I don't know about you, but if you've ever had somebody steal something from you, it's, it's not only is it they violating the law, but it, it, it violates your personal space, your sense of safety. And, and I'll never forget when I was in college, uh, I was doing a Disciple Now weekend. And for those of you that didn't have the privilege of growing up Baptist, you may not know what that is, but it's where students come together and they have like a worship service on a Friday, then they break up and they go into people's homes and it's a Disciple Now. So you just take the whole weekend to disciple a group of students. And so I was doing this and on Saturday morning, I woke up and I went outside and my truck had been broken into. Now, as a young guy, teenager, and, and, and really in through college until I got married, almost all my paychecks that I got, talking about being a bad financial steward, I would spend it on putting sound systems in my vehicles because I love music and I love listening to sound systems. So every vehicle I had, I would transfer sound systems over, get new stuff. Well, they broke into this, my truck and they stole my entire sound system, broke the window, ripped everything out. And I'll never forget walking out that morning and, and just feeling so violated and, and this sense of like, man, this is not safe. The crazy part about that story is about a week later, they called me and said, hey, we found your stuff. And I saw it on the news. And a guy who stole it, him and his boys, was actually a guy that I went to high school with. And, and here's the crazy thing. Where, where I grew up, I grew up you know, in the city. And then for high school, we moved out to kind of out just outside the city. And I went to a different high school. It was a high school called Chapel Hill. And our arch rival was a high school called White House. And if you don't know about that, actually the guy who just won the Super Bowl is the quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. That's where he went to high school. And so we did not like each other. But I was doing this disciple now in the White House school district. And one of my friends from high school that I played football with at Chapel Hill was breaking into cars, not in his neighborhood, but in White House where I was doing this disciple now. And he broke into my car, one of his friends that he went to high school with, and I found out on the news. I gotta tell you, it made our 10-year anniversary, our 10-year school reunion, really, really interesting. Because the moment that we walked into the 10-year reunion, I had Jackson with me, and he walked right up to me. He's like, and the first thing that he said to me, he's like, dude, I'm so sorry I broke into your truck. I'm so sorry, I didn't know it was your truck. I would have known it was your truck. I would have never done it. I'm like, well, just because it was my truck doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it to anybody's truck. And, and the cool thing about the story was that whole thing that obviously led to his arrest changed his life around. And he was now following God. And so that basic law of not stealing is, again, not this some huge moral code, but just saying, listen, it's going to go better as neighbors if you don't steal their stuff. And then the last one that he mentions here, which is really interesting, he says, do not covet. Now think about this. If you were to start your own nation and come up with a top 10 laws, like the top 10, would you put covet, do not covet in the top 10? Well, God did. 
God put in the top 10, do not covet. Why? Because God understands something about human relationships. He understands that one of the most destructive forces on the planet is this lust that we have in our hearts to have more, to look at what other people have and to want it for ourselves. And so it's interesting to me that this is one of the ones that Paul mentions here because here's what he's saying. If I want what you have for myself, then I'm not loving you as myself. I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. Now, I've heard people misquote this verse again quite often where they talk about, they know the command that God has commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. They say, well, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, then I better get really good at loving myself. <laughs> Please, that's a misunderstanding of the verse. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't love yourself. You are made in the image of God. God did sacrifice his son for you. And so I'm not saying you should hate yourself. That's not what the verse is saying. What it's simply saying is this word here, as, is a comparative. All of us have no problem thinking of ourselves first. That just comes natural. This is why whenever we walk into a room and a group of people there, the first person we're thinking about is ourselves, what they are thinking about us. And so what Paul is getting at here and what Jesus was getting at, which obviously the Old Testament was preaching as well, it's not saying think less of yourself, not hate yourself, not don't love yourself, but what he's saying is love your neighbor as though they are you. So it's simply putting them in the place that you normally put yourself. So it's putting them before you. And what Paul is getting at here is that is what love is. Love is putting someone else first. That's the essence of love. And so we think about as a Christian, again, the principle that drives everything that we do is we want to be, yes, a good neighbor. We want to love others as we love ourselves. And that word there, comparative, is a, is a word that also can mean like. And, and this is one of those words anybody who's been around me knows that today we have an overuse of the word like. In fact, if you're watching and use the word like a lot, that could be something you could work on during quarantine, all right? Find a better word. I think it should go in the category of four-letter words, all right? Because we just use the word like all the time as a filler word. But the word like is a comparative. And so it's being misused in the sense of if, if what we're saying is not comparing it to something else, then we're not using the word correctly. And so I want you to think about every time you say the word like, what he's getting at here is you should love your neighbor like you love yourself. You should love your neighbor as though they are yourself. And when we do that, that's a summation. That's a fulfillment of those last six commands in the 10 commandments. And not only does Jesus not do away with those, not only are we not to do away with those, Jesus ups them. In fact, Jesus takes them a step further. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. The reason why Jesus could give us a command is because he wrote the commandments. He's the one that wrote them. That's why John 1 says he is the word. And so as Christians, what we do is we look at Jesus as the fulfillment of the word and we think, okay, I'm gonna do what Jesus did. And that's what's so crazy even about the category that we call ourselves today is Christians. In fact, if you could just go read in the book of Acts, Acts chapter nine, the early followers of Jesus did not call themselves Christians. They were just followers of the way because Jesus said in John 14, six, that he was the way the way, the truth, and the life. And so the followers of Jesus were just the way. 
but they were loving like Jesus loved so much that other people started calling them Christians because they reminded them of Christ. And here's what I'm getting at. We should never take on the title of Christian if we're not planning on loving like Christ. In fact, I would say it's really the duty of other people to call us Christians, not so much to tell other people we are Christians. We're simply telling them about Christ and how we follow Christ. And then how we love them should prove and show that we're Christians. And that's what Paul's getting at here. In fact, throughout human history, in fact, in Rome specifically, the letter to which Paul is writing this, the Roman Christians loved so much. Ironically, during a time, if you go back and look at history, during a time when there was another plague going on, the Christians loved so much at great cost to themselves as the best citizens in the country of Rome to the point where it turned the Roman Empire upside down because they had never seen as good a Christian, as good a citizens as there were Christians because they were literally caring and meeting the needs of all the people around them, all the orphans, all the people that had been thrown out, all the sick. They were literally just loving their neighbors as though they were themselves. And this brings up a unique point or principle when it comes to how we as Christians interact with the world around us. Now I'm going to give you this point and I'm going to unpack it with a set of scriptures out of John 17. So if you want to flip there and follow along with me, you can. We'll get back to Romans 13. Let me give you this point and I'm going to recognize the irony of it and then I'm going to break it down. But here's the point of how Christians act. The Christian neither shuts off from society. The Christian neither shuts off from society nor conforms to it. I've said this often on the east side of the road is a ditch and there's multiple ways to be wrong. And one ditch that Christians go into often is they, they shut off from society. Now, again, this is where I recognize the irony of the statement. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't obey the guidelines that our government has given us for social distancing and all the health guidelines. And yes, I'm not saying that you, Christians shouldn't quarantine themselves during a crisis. That's not what I'm saying. Because Romans 13, one through seven applies where we listen to our government, we pray for our leaders and we respond as good citizens to do what they say for us to do. But, but, but my point here is this, what Christians do a lot of times, not only during the crisis, is what Christians do is they move away from culture and they create like their own separate subcultures. They, they, they then have their own schools, their own music, their own stuff, because they think the object is to not be of the world. So Christians move out and shut themselves off from the culture. But another ditch that Christians get into is the exact opposite to where they don't shut themselves off to the world, but they just go with the world. They just go with the flow. They think the loving thing to do is the comfortable thing. And think about it. That's how we even use the word. Like the loving thing to do is to not tell them the truth or the loving thing to do is not to make someone feel uncomfortable. And so therefore, a lot of times Christians get in this other ditch where they just conform to the world, the standards of the world, the morals of the world, the laws of the world. They don't have a higher authority. And so Christians can get in that ditch as well. And here's what I'm saying to you. Christians don't do either of those things. In fact, if you've been around revolution, you know, if I ask the question, do we shut off or, you know, do we stay in the world, but we're not of it? Yes, both are true. We don't shut off. We live in it, but we don't conform to it. 
And, and Christians kind of sum that up by saying something like this. I'm not in the, I mean, I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. And, and, and here's where I think Christians get that statement wrong. It's a misreading of what Jesus actually said in John 17. So, so let me read this to you in John 17, verses 14 through 19, and then I'll explain what I mean. This is Jesus talking. This is called the high priestly prayer. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Listen to Jesus' statement. I do not ask for you to take them out. Now, our hope is built upon Jesus coming back and taking us out. We look forward to the new heaven and the new earth. But if God hasn't done that yet, it's because he's left us with the mission. So Jesus says, listen, I'm not asking that you take them out. What is he asking? But that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Now listen to this. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So Christians who say, I'm in it, but I'm not of it. They put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, all right? They put the emphasis on like, oh, I have to be in this world, but my whole goal is to not be of it. And that's where we kind of get off into this other ditch where we shut ourselves off from the world. But that's the complete misreading and opposite trajectory of what Jesus said. He said, no, listen, you're not of it. You're not of it now any more than I was of it. And so the, the whole point of not being of it is Jesus saying, yeah, you are not of this world anymore. You are now of another world. And so live like that. But a better way to read it is not, I'm in it, but not of it, is to say, I'm not of it, but I'm sent into it. That's a better understanding of our posture towards the world. Of course, I'm not of it. If the world loves me, I'm doing something wrong, but I'm sent into the world to serve it. And that's exactly what Jeremiah said to the exiles when they were exiled out of Israel. He said, seek the welfare of the city into which you were sent. And here's where the calling of Christians, again, these things aren't mutually exclusive. We don't adopt the world's values or the world's morals, but we don't separate, we don't prove our morals by just separating from them. We are separate from them in belief, but we are not separate from them in practice or presence. Now, again, during this time, yes, we practice social distancing. Yes, we're doing everything that the government has told us to do. But here's what I'm getting at. As a general principle, Christians, it is our job to love our neighbors in such a way where we don't conform to what they believe, but we love them anyway. Because here's what I know. If you can only love people that are like you, you will only ever love yourself. If you can only love people that are exactly like you, you will only love yourself. This is the crazy thing about Jesus. Jesus didn't believe what sinners believed, but he was a friend of sinners. And that's what the righteous moral people of his day couldn't figure out about him. He was hanging with all the wrong people, but yet he had all the right beliefs. And that's the unique role that we're called to play within a society. We don't conform to the world's patterns. We don't conform to the world's belief systems, but we can never use that as an excuse to not love our neighbors as ourselves. And here's what I want us to see in this unprecedented time that we're in, where, where everybody is freaking out, where there is a lot of instability, where people are losing their jobs and people are having to lay people off. People are sick. People are needy. This is the opportunity of, for the church to rise up and move into our cities and serve them. 
What a unique opportunity that God has given us as the church to step in to our cities and seek the welfare of those around us. And you may be thinking, what can I do? Well, start with your literal neighbors. I mean, of course, this applies to people that are right next to you. Reach out to your neighbors. And it doesn't mean you have to go into their house and knock on the door. Hey, is there something that you need? Can I go to the store for you? Can I serve you in some way? And so you start there. All of our groups that are meeting together, we've been pushing this for a while. We want you to serve the needs in your community. And yes, there's organizational things that we're doing as a church where you can drop food off and serve and serve Saturday and all those kinds of things. We, we do those not because, you know, we want you just to do those and then feel like you can check it off, but we do those to just kind of introduce you to the concept. And then we want you to just come up with ideas on your own of how to do that. One idea that one of our staff had this week that I thought was fantastic, just taking Chick-fil-A to the local hospitals, to the doctors and nurses and blessing them and saying, we just, we recognize that you're working so hard and you don't always get a break to eat. And so we just want to serve food to you. Man, what a great idea. And so we're, we have a unique opportunity right now. Yes, again, we follow the government's, you know, guidelines, but it doesn't mean that it, it trumps what we're supposed to do to actually love our neighbors as though they were ourselves. And here's what's amazing in the life of the church. It's not just that this crisis is scary, but what's scary is if this crisis doesn't change us. If this crisis doesn't wake, awaken us to the realities that there is an eternity. We all face death. And if we care about our neighbor's eternity, then we will want them to know about Christ. And they won't have an opportunity a lot of times to know about Christ unless we love them and show them as a representative or as a Christian. And so I don't know what that means for you. All I want you to see though is You can be innovative. You can pray. You can ask the Lord and say, Lord, how would you have me to do that in some specific ways during this time? Last verse, verse 10, back to Romans 13. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. At the basis understanding, we don't do wrong to a neighbor, but we love them. Here's what's crazy. Even if they've done wrong to you, we don't do wrong back. We talked about that a couple weeks ago as well. Vengeance is not ours. It's the Lord's. But even if we've been done wrong, we don't do wrong. And as I was thinking about that this week and studying even this morning, that phrase, do no harm, came to my mind. And then instantly I thought of the oath that doctors take when they get into the medical profession. It's called the Hippocratic Oath. And Most doctors take some version of this oath, and this was a doctor back in Greece over 2,000 years ago, and that was literally his name, and he wrote an oath, and so a lot of doctors take that, and it's summed up sometimes by the first thing is do no harm, and so I was thinking about that. I actually got the oath and a translation of it into English, and and so just go with me here. I want to read it, but you have to pay attention. And then I want to talk about what that means for us. And so this was an oath that was written over 2,000 years ago that kind of forms the basis of medical professionals. He says, I swear by Apollo. He's Greek. And so he's swearing to multiple gods and other gods that I can't even get their names right. And by all the gods and goddesses, making them my witnesses that I will carry out according to my ability and judgment, this oath and this indenture. Now listen to what he says. 
to hold my teacher in this art equal to my own parents, to make him partner in my livelihood. When he is in need of money to share mine with him, to consider his family as my own brothers and to teach them this art. If they want to learn it without fee or indenture, to impart precept, oral instruction, and all other instruction to my own sons, the sons of my teacher, and to indenture pupils who have taken the physician's oath, but to nobody else. First part, he's saying, listen, I'm gonna take care of those who have taught me this. I'm gonna treat them as brothers and sisters, as family, and I'm gonna multiply myself into their kids. I mean, start thinking about that. I'm gonna treat somebody who's not my family as though they're my family. He goes on, look at this. I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury and wrongdoing. Now listen to these next two phrases. I recognize they might sound very controversial, but I wanna read them to you. It says, neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest a course. Similarly, I will not give to a woman a pessary to cause abortion. This is over 2,000 years ago. But I will keep pure and holy both my life and my art. I will not use the knife, not even verily, on sufferers from stone, but I will give place, but I will give place to such as a craftsman there within. What he was saying is he's not going to use his medicine to cause harm. And here in our culture today, we're having conversations about euthanasia and abortion. And here they were 2,000 years ago saying they won't do that because it causes harm. Man, brings a whole new dimension to the conversation of do no wrong to your neighbor. Because I would say biblically, the unborn child is your neighbor. And I'm not trying to make political statements. I'm just trying to show you the outworkings of what this means. From a non-Christian's medical professional stance, that's what he came to. He goes on. He says, into whatever Houses I enter, I will enter to help the sick and I will abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm, especially from abusing the bodies of man or woman, bond or free. And whatsoever I shall see or hear in the course of my profession, as well as outside my profession in the intercourse with men, will it, it, if it be, which should not be published abroad, I will never divulge holding such things to be holy secrets. Now, if I carry out this oath and break it or not, may I gain forever a reputation among all men for my life and for my art. But if I break it and forswear myself, may the opposite befall me. What is he getting at? Before he practiced medicine, he took an oath. Here's what I want us to think. This isn't a sermon about doctors. This is a sermon about Christians. What if when you became a Christian, you took an oath? When you became a follower of Jesus, you took an oath that said, I will love God with all my being and I will love my neighbor as though they are myself. And see, in this day and age, I think a lot of people come to Christ because they are scared of death and that's one motivation and it's not wrong, but then with no view of their life changing while they're here on earth. And so there's a lot of people that just made a profession of faith with no understanding of what they were saying. But I want you to understand when you get baptized, that is the public profession of your faith. And what you're saying is, I'm dying to myself. I'm dying to myself. I'm not going to love myself first anymore. I'm going to love God first. And I'm going to love others as though they were myself. And then I'm going to raise. And when you raise, you come out of the water. And now you've so identified with Christ. That is the oath. And so if doctors have an oath, 
And they are doing life-saving measures and we praise them for it as believers who are sharing life, who have the, 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 the prescription to eternal life. Why would we not also similarly take an oath to say, I'm gonna love my neighbor as myself. I'm gonna put my neighbor in front of myself at great disadvantage to myself. I'm gonna love them as though they were myself. And we have a unique opportunity right now in this season to step in and be the church and do that. Because even though the church is not gathered together right now in physical locations, we are the church scattered. And so we're still the church. We're still the body of Christ. And, and, and even though we can't meet together and there may come a day where our government says we can't gather together at all like it is in other countries. It doesn't make us not the church and we're still the church scattered and people will know us as the church if we remind them of Christ. If we love like Christ did. And so I think this is a timely message for us. Again, I couldn't have planned this, but I think it's timely because this is our time and we'll get into this more next week. Because in verse 11, he says, this is the time. You know, we have conversations all the time. People ask me, is, is this the end times? Even this virus, earthquake, is this the end times? Here's what I know. It's closer to the end times than it was yesterday. And we'll get into this more next week. But honestly, if the end of the world is this week or if the end of the world is a thousand years from now, does it change how you should live every day? Don't live like Christ just because you think it's all coming to an end. Live like Christ because he gave his life for you. And now you want to love your neighbor so that they can know Christ. So two things and how we respond and we'll close. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, I want you to understand something. God stepped into this world and sacrificed himself because he loved you. So today you can respond to that and be saved. And then as Christians, we do the same thing. Even though right now we're quarantined, we're not quarantined from the mission that God has for us. And so yes, we will practice safe social distancing guidelines and everything, but we will not use that as an excuse to not obey the commands that God has given us to love our neighbor as ourselves, as though they were ourselves, to put their needs ahead of our own and so we have a unique opportunity as the church to be the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace in our life and how you have loved us so much that you have given us yourself. You have given us your son. You have sacrificed yourself as the sacrificial lamb so that we could have life. And God, I pray if there's anybody here listening or watching today that hasn't trusted Christ, that they would do so. They'd respond in faith and be saved. And if that's you, again, during this time, if you wanna trust Christ for the first time, then I'm gonna lead you in a prayer and you can pray with me. And it's simply a confession. It's simply saying, I am a sinner and I need you to save me. So if that's you, you can pray with me and it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son Jesus to die in my place for my sin. I ask you to save me. Forgive me. Give me life in Christ. 
Now, if you just prayed that with us, we wanna know that because again, we have a gift for you. If you were here today, we'd have you raise your hand and we would give you a Bible. But please reach out to us and let us know because we wanna follow up with you. But then all of us who are believers, we have confessed Christ, Christ as our savior. Then we need to understand that when we confessed that, that we are coming underneath his authority in our life to command us. And we did take an oath and the oath was to love in the way that we've been loved. And that's a debt again, that we never pay off. We can never say I've loved enough. We can never say I've served enough. But here's the amazing thing. When we live our life as sacrifice, when we live our life in love, you'll have purpose, you'll have meaning, and you'll have joy. That's the crazy thing. There's actually more joy in sacrificing. Jesus said it like this, it's actually more blessed to give than to receive. And so yes, we want God to bless us, but we want God to bless us so we can be a blessing. And church, we have a unique opportunity right now in this season to do that, to meet the needs of those around us, to rise up and be the church. So Father, I pray that you would help us do this. Help us to be wise, God. We don't wanna be foolish. We wanna be wise, but help us to operate in faith knowing that you've called us on a mission. And that mission is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so God, I look forward to hearing all the stories of how the church worldwide rose up and served. And maybe it, it means that somebody we know has lost their job and we just reach out and help them. Maybe it means somebody in our neighborhood is on hard times and we help them. Maybe it means we just figure out ways to bless those that are working so hard to keep us safe. Whatever it is, God, I pray that you would show us and that we'd respond. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.